You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. We get to walk through Exodus 24 through 31 today, and our reading comes from a few sections there, verses 13 in 24 through 25, 9, and then the end of chapter 29. We'll read this now as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up to the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen and goat hair. Ram's skins dyed red and fine leather. Acacia wood. Oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil. And for the fragrant incense. And onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and the breastplate, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. I will also meet with the Israelites there, and that place will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Brother? All right. This is incredible. Um, I had an introduction planned, um, but given that I was spending all day preparing all my sermon yesterday, um, I was not aware of what happened in Buffalo. Um, So um, as Chad said, that should shake us that that type of evil, that type of sin is still present in our world. And, And there's a challenge for us here is what, can we as Christians bring to that type of situation? And I think just as we take a look at a section of scripture like this today, I think it's important to ask, well, how does this instruct how we are to understand those situations? Because there's a lot of detail that's going to be going on here. There's a lot of construction details. There's a lot of details of different types of materials about what is the tabernacle, Why is it being built? And I think that as we think about the lives that we live, 
um, in this world. And as we think about what the tabernacle is telling us, we are to understand that God is making things new. He is giving us an answer to the questions like this of what goes on in our world because he is actually in the process of bringing, bringing those types of things to an end. He gives us a hope and he gives us an understanding that there's pain and there's suffering, but we as Christians have a hope that we can stand on and a hope that we can bring and a light that we can bring to those types of situations. So again, there's a this tabernacle narrative instructs us that God is making things new. That's where this is going. That's where, um, that's where I want to kind of lead us as we look through this passage. Um, I'm excited to do it. Exodus, as many of you know, is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, absolute favorite. And um, this is also the hardest sermon I've ever had to prepare. Um, eight chapters is a lot. Is a lot to go through. Um, but um, I just want to lean on God for his help, and I want to, to ask God then in the, in the midst of trying to understand this big section of Scripture, how is God speaking to us through this? How are we to understand what God is telling us through the tabernacle? Um, how are we to understand him? How does that impact us? So um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask for the Lord's help. Dear Lord, we're... Um, we're grateful today uh, that you um, that you have made yourself known to us. Um, you did not have to do so. Um, when you created all things and when all things fell apart, Lord, you could have left us. You could have restarted things um, from scratch. You could have done a lot of things, but instead, Lord, uh, you chose to undertake this great work of salvation um, that we see unfolding before us in Exodus and that we see unfolding through the rest of Scripture. So, Lord, help us to understand what your word is telling us. Help us, Lord, to see you clearly. Lord, grant us your spirit that we would be, uh, that we would be changed by this to fall more in love with you and to understand, Lord, how then this impacts the life that we are to live before you. So, uh, we just ask for your help, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, Exodus 24 through 31, the tabernacle. I won't, it is a narrative, but more so it feels more like, um, it feels like a really big shift in how, the, in how Exodus has played out thus far. Um, so when we look at this particular section of Exodus, um, it makes us think of how things have kind of unfolded previously. And in the previous unfolding of Exodus, it's been a lot of really vivid, really mind-capturing story of what God is doing to save his people. But as we come to this section, the, the way that things play out kind of shifts. And instead of getting a lot of really mind-capturing stories, really vivid stories, we get instead really vivid descriptions we get really intense details about this structure called the tabernacle, about the different things that make it up, about the different things that go inside it, about a guy who walks around in the middle of it dressed in really crazy clothes. Like there's an entire chapter on just clothes in this section. Like that's pretty crazy. But um, what this is telling us specifically is that God has a purpose in salvation. So up until now, 
the narrative of Exodus has kind of shown us that God is saving and has, and has saved a people for himself. But what hasn't really unfolded at this point is the reasons why. Why is God doing this work? So the main thing that I wanted to look at with you here today um, is the purpose that God has in salvation. Now, what's been mentioned previously is that this is a pattern. This is, if you will, a blueprint of how God is working amongst his people, but it's just a copy. It's a shadow of heavenly realities. That's what Hebrews 8.5 says. So as we look at this, we're intended to see God's purpose in salvation and then to look through it to the greater reality of what's coming, and that's the salvation that we now have in Christ. So God's purpose in salvation— Really and truly, eight chapters are spent developing this simple sentence. And it really is pretty simple what God is doing. He just spends a lot of detail depicting how he's doing it. So, God's purpose in salvation, two things. One, he is communing with his people. And two, he is dwelling with them. That is his purpose. He, God's purpose in salvation is to commune with his people and dwell with them. That is what he is depicting when he gives us this structure called the tabernacle. So, um, and remember, these are, this is a copy and shadow of what is to come. So again, I want us, as we go through this section of scripture, to look through what's going on with the tabernacle and see Christ on the other side. That's where we're intended to go. Um, the second goal that I have in this text is just a, a general Uh, just a general exhortation to us as the church, as believers, is that this can be a difficult passage to read through, to study through, as you're, you know, going through a, a, uh, like a Bible reading plan, right? This is one of those sections of scripture where you can tend to, like, kind of falter a little bit. You're like, what's really going on here? Um, The Old Testament has sections that are difficult to understand, but what I want us to see is the exhortation of 2 Timothy 3.16, which is that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So when we come to a section of scripture like this, we have to understand that it is breathed out by God, but that it's profitable for our lives. There is something that God is doing in texts like this. So just my exhortation to to you guys as we look through this, but also just as you spend time in Scripture in sections like this, spend time with them. Really work through them, and there is fruit there. There is treasure there to be uncovered. And it truly is glorious, the things about God that you will come to understand when you devote the time to really going through these sections. So general exhortation, I'll get into kind of the structure and the flow of my sermon now. But again, main idea, God's purpose in salvation is to commune with his people and dwell with them. So we read earlier at the end of chapter 24 that God uh, takes Moses up on the mountain. He spends 40 days and 40 nights doing this, y'all. Like (laughs) He spends a long time with these details. Um, But he tells Moses that he's giving him a pattern, a pattern that he is to follow very carefully. And my argument is that When God gives Moses a pattern for the tabernacle, he's given them actually three patterns for how God is to play out this purpose for salvation, how he is to commune with his people and dwell with them. 
So pattern number one uh, is centered around Exodus 24, but it's the pattern of a new covenant. So what is God's purpose in salvation? It is to commune with his people. How is he going to do that? He's going to establish a covenant with them. So I'm going to read real quick from Exodus 24, 6 through 11. Okay, so Moses 24, 6 through 11. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins, the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire stone as clear as the sky itself. And God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. So what's going on here? So in order to create communion with his people, God first has to establish a relationship with them, and that comes in the form of a covenant. This is stated explicitly in the text and that he is uh, that Moses has sprinkled the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with his people. And the covenant relationship is summed up by one of the highlights that Chad mentioned in the sermon last week from Exodus 19, where the scripture reads, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Leviticus is actually stated even more plainly than that. I will walk among you and you will be, you, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the essence of the covenant that God makes with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. But the focus here is how that covenant is confirmed. And this chapter outlines that there's very three, there's three very specific ways that, that God himself takes the initiative to enact in confirming that covenant. The first thing that he does is he gives his word. So in chapter 6, or not chapter 6, in verse 6, uh, it's mentioned, um, excuse me, I referenced that incorrectly, in uh, verse 7, Moses took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey everything the Lord has commanded. So this word is going to form the basis for the written scriptures, actually. This is the first time where it's mentioned in the Bible that the word of God has been written down. And he's written it down in a scroll form, and he reads it to the people. So this is meant to indicate that God's form among his people, the way that they are going to understand him and worship him, is through his word rather than an image. So they're not going to be creating an image or an idol of God that's been expressly forbidden in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, but instead they're going to worship God and understand him and relate to him through his word. And Deuteronomy makes this very clear in chapter 4, where the Lord speaks. He says, Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire, referencing the Ten Commandments coming to the people. And he says, You kept hearing the sound of the words, but you didn't see a form. There was only a voice. He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. And at that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you the statutes and ordinances for you to follow. So that word, that word that was given on the mountain that the people heard a voice, they didn't see a form, the word of God is meant to convey the very shape and essence 
of who God is. And so it's how his people are to understand him and then relate to him. They're to worship him through his word, and he gives his word so that they can actually establish that relationship with him. The second thing he does here in this section is he covers with blood, that is God. So Moses, as we read, takes the blood of two offerings, the burnt offering, which is for atonement's sake, and then a fellowship offering, which is to signify peace and fellowship with God. And then he takes the blood from those sacrifices and he throws them on the people, all in front of them, and he sprinkles them all with blood, which is a pretty odd thing to do, I would think. I've never had that experience to me before, and I won't imagine that it's particularly pleasant to have the blood of freshly slaughtered animals just thrown upon you. So, what's going on here, right? I mean, this is just an interesting thing. Well, I think that Leviticus 17:11 helps us to see what is happening here. It says, when the Lord talks about the blood, he says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. So God gives, this is one of the reasons why God creates blood, which is an amazing thing. Like when God created how we're designed, like not just us, but like animals in general, like he created blood for this purpose. But God gives blood to his people so that it can serve as an effective means of atoning for sin, so that they can be acceptable to him. And it's interesting that it's this act of covering, which, which is, kind of involved in this process, this sprinkling of blood. So for me, when I look at this and and Leviticus 17 says that the life of a creature is in the blood, it's almost like the act of covering something with something else's life. You understand what I'm saying? It's you're taking the life of something, you're transferring it onto something else. So in that way, God can see through the covering of blood, like there is life being poured out, but there's also life being given to the people who have that blood sprinkled upon them. So the covenant that God makes with his people establishes peace and fellowship with his people, but then he covers them with the life of something else so that they may see they actually have new life. They have left behind their old life, the life in Egypt that they were rescued out of, the life of idolatry and slavery that they left behind, and instead they have now been given new life to live in God's name for God's purpose. And the last thing that God does here in this chapter is he confirms this covenant with a meal. So, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abdahu, 70 elders go up to the mountain and they see the God of Israel. And what do they do when they're up there? They sit down and they have a meal. Almost like God is at the table with them. They are eating and drinking in his presence. It says they saw him and they ate and they drank. So this holy God, which we've already talked about, he is completely holy, completely divine, completely transcendent, completely other in his godness, in his deity, in his holiness, in his purity, he sits down and has a meal with a very sinful people. The people who we just looked at last week are very quick to disobey God and to grumble against him and complain to him. But here, because of the action that God's taken in confirming his covenant, he can sit down and have a meal with them. And I love this verse, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him and they ate and drank. Almost like God would have been justified. There's like 
huh, he did not harm them. Instead, they ate and drank with him. So I love this idea that because God has made peace with his people through his covenant, that they have communion with him, that they can sit down and have a meal with him and not be afraid. So to wrap up this first pattern, this idea of a new covenant that God is establishing with his people, the word communion I used intentionally because it's incredibly striking to see the similarities between this particular meal and another meal that will happen about 1,500 years later, which is the Last Supper. Speaking of which, in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, Jesus, who is the very word of God described in John 1, he mentions that he offers up his body and blood for the disciples to eat, and he calls his blood the blood that establishes the covenant, which is, again, very similar to what we just read in Exodus 24. So again, the idea is that his life, Jesus' life, is transferred to his people by the idea that this covenant is established with them. And so the 12 disciples then eat and drink in God's presence, in Jesus' presence, to confirm the reality of that actual new covenant. Again, this is just a copy. The covenant that we have with Christ is the reality. So this supper is what we call communion. Uh, and we take it every week here at King's Cross, and we do that to remind ourselves of this reality, that the reality that this passage is pointing to has in fact happened. And so as we approach this text and this meal today, it's worth asking, do we know that we need rescuing? Have we understood that we need to be rescued from our sin and sinfulness and have life with God? But do we also understand that Jesus Christ has actually offered himself on our behalf and given that blood of the covenant and transferred his life to us and that that power of his blood cancels the record of our sin and grants new life in his place? Because if we do, then we ought to praise God this morning. That we ought to praise God this morning because he did not have to do this again this is his initiative, his action. He is the one doing these things with his people. He is graciously bringing a covenant, under, like confirming a relationship, and then inviting those people into his presence. He did not have to do that. He would have been completely justified not to, but instead, this is what he has done. So, if you have, in fact, seen your need for him, and you've accepted that, praise him today, because it did not have to be that way. And if, we, and if you're here and you haven't seen these realities, if you haven't seen your need, if you haven't seen that Jesus has offered himself to you, then I praise God for that too. Because if you're here today, that means you need to see that. And you don't see that yet. So um, if you haven't seen those realities yet, if you haven't seen that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and offered his life to you, then accept that today. Accept that because that is what he's offering freely. So, as we then look towards the rest of Exodus, 30, uh, 25 through 31, so that was just chapter 24. I promise not every chapter will be dwelled on for as long. We're going to take the rest of these in chunks. So, the, remind, the remainder of the rest of Exodus is, is intended to convey the idea of God's purpose in salvation being that he is wanting to dwell with his people. So kind of going back to the main idea, God's purpose in salvation is to commune with his people and then dwell with them. 
So this chapter we just finished up, communion. Everything else is dwelling. Everything else is intended to show how God is depicting how he will dwell with his people. And again, there's patterns here. There's patterns involved. So we're going to look through these patterns, these blueprints to the greater reality of what's coming. But this section of scripture is intended to give us two blueprints for understanding how God dwells with his people. He's going to dwell with them through a new creation, and he's going to dwell with them through a new Adam. So that's kind of where we're headed. First, we'll tackle a new creation. This is the bulk of the section, 25 through 27 and 30 through 31. That's all kind of the narrative of the tabernacle construction. And I'm not going to go through all the details and all the parts. I'm sorry we would be here for a very long time if I did that. Um, So I'm going to try and be brief, um, but I'm going to highlight those areas of the tabernacle that are most important to that idea, that God is intending to dwell with his people by forming a new creation among them. So one of the ways in which we see that happen is that we see that God places uh, his throne and his creation in the midst of his people. The place of God's dwelling is now in the midst of a particular people. And the first key detail I mentioned here is not even in Exodus. It's actually in the book of Numbers in chapter 2. But when you read that particular chapter, you actually see geographically that the tabernacle is actually smack in the middle of the Israelite camp. You have the tabernacle in the middle. You have three tribes to the north, three to the east, three to the south, and then three to the west. So geographically speaking, the tabernacle is in the midst of God's people. That is where he has placed it. It's the center of their life and existence. So God's putting this thing in the middle of his people, but what is he putting? Well, he's putting the tabernacle. And as we see in this section, the tabernacle is the place of God's dwelling. It is the place where he himself comes to reside on the earth. So he has put his dwelling place, not just anything, in the midst of his people. He has put himself in the midst of his people. And again, that's an extremely gracious thing for God to do because, again, it's not that he just didn't have to do that, but then he dwells with his people in a way that they can understand and relate to. You have a tent where God dwells in the midst of a tent, a group of tents that are formed up of his people. They all are living at this point in the wilderness and will continue to do so for at least a little bit in the promised land, but as they move about in the wilderness— Like for 40 years, they're going to have this tabernacle in the midst of their camp. It's a tent in the midst of tents. So we have the transcendent, glorious, pure, completely holy, completely other God dwelling with his people in a way that one relates to them and that they can understand what he's doing. He is actually making his tent with his people. He is living with them. So he's communicating something, right? He's communicating that he has placed himself in the midst of his people. He is relating to them. He is making himself, by his grace, understandable to them. And he's not just doing it in any old tent. He's doing it in this really detailed, really glorious, really beautiful depiction of what the tabernacle is. It's not just like you and me going up and setting up a two-person tent in the camp in the middle of the woods. Like, this is a really elaborate structure with a lot of time and a lot of detail spent on how it's supposed to look. So you're supposed to be able to see it, and that's supposed to be telling you something. So what exactly is the pattern of the tabernacle telling us? Well, first off, it's telling us that God has a new Eden 
in place. So as you look at the tabernacle construction, you can look at this specifically in in chapters 26, um, that there's things woven into the coverings of the tabernacle, the curtains that make it up, and in the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Well, what's on those things? Why is that important? Well, it's cherubim. What are those? Well, the last time we saw cherubim was in Genesis 3, when God removed Adam and Eve from his presence, and he placed cherubim at the entrance to where? The Garden of Eden, to protect it. So cherubim are now showing up again for the first time since Genesis 3, and that tells us, well, what's happening? Well, we have essentially a new Garden of Eden being developed in the midst of God's people. Now, what's a little bit different about this is that there's actually a way that God has placed back into that garden because you have the entrance to the tabernacle, you have all the sides of the tabernacle surrounded by cherubim, and you have the veil between the, between, the pla- between the holy place and the most holy place also covered in cherubim, but the entrance into the tabernacle does not have any cherubim specifically. It's completely missing. So what's that mean? Well, that means that people can go in. It means that as the Levite tribe, who's going to be the priestly class, ministers to God's ministers on behalf of God's people, they can enter back into this garden, this place where God himself dwells. So God is doing something new. He has since, in Genesis 3, removed people completely from his garden, but now he's bringing people back in. And again, this reality is not yet complete, right? There's still separation. There's still a veil between the place of God's full presence and the place in the rest of the tabernacle. But it's still considered a holy place, a place where God himself dwells. And so God is allowing people back into his garden. He's placed his new Eden, his new creation, or the very least a picture of it, right? In the midst of his people, intending to convey that he is beginning to restore everything from that point in time. He is actually in the process of getting that done. The other thing that kind of tells us that we're in a new Garden of Eden is the lampstand, because it's designed actually as a tree. It's designed as an almond tree. It has branches, and it has blossoms, and it has leaves. And so it's intended to, to depict that there's a new tree of life in the midst of this tabernacle. And again, it is an eternal tree. It's made of gold. It's not going to die. It's not going to have its blossoms shrivel up and fall off. It is a a, a tree of life, a tree that is supposed to be forever burning because it's got candles in each of its lampstand cups. So it's intended to convey that it is a tree of life. So again, the idea there is that God is placing a new Eden, a new creation where God is dwelling with his people once again in the midst of this people that he has saved. And it's significant, I think, um, because it's not just a new Eden that he's putting in it, he's putting his actual throne room in the midst of his people. Because cherubim are intended to convey another depiction, and that's the idea that cherubim are associated with God's own throne. And we can see that specifically in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, and Revelation 4, that when you see God's throne moving around on the earth and when you're ushered into the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4, there are four living creatures, four cherubim oriented around his throne. And actually when God descends into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant has two cherubim on top of the mercy seat. 
and God meets with Israel from between the cherubim. So the cherubim are indicative that God's throne is where they are. Where the cherubim are, there is God's throne. Where God's throne is, you will find cherubim. So the idea there then is that God's ruling place is in the midst of his people. And Chad's mentioned specifically that God's people are the ones who acknowledge their Lord as king. And so God rules in our hearts as God's people for those who have been saved by him. And so again, the throne is at the center of this new creation that God is placing in the midst of his people. And I think it's, I think it's interesting that it's this people, right? I mean, there's a ton of power, there's a ton of power nations in the Bible. You have Egypt, you have Babylon, you have Assyria, you have Rome. Places that humans would think, well, that's a powerful place. That's a powerful people. That's a powerful empire. But God has put his throne, his place of rule, his place of power and authority in the midst of what he calls the fewest of all peoples in Deuteronomy. A tribe that's just spent 400 years in slavery and oppression under a more powerful nation. God didn't put his throne with the Egyptians or with any other nation or tribe that conveyed the the human idea of what power is. God put his throne in the midst of a weak people, a sinful people, a stubborn people, a hard-headed people. And he's showing that he is going to identify himself with those and he's going to care for those who were oppressed, but he's also going to convey his rule through those who have no choice but to acknowledge that there is someone more powerful than they are in their midst. And so when we approach the throne of God, when we acknowledge his authority, we come humbly. We come in a state of weakness because we are not, we are not the power people maybe that even we think we are. We are God's people and we need his help in order to live the life, in order to commune with him the way we're intended to. But not, so that kind of wraps up God's, um, God in his people's midst. But you also kind of have the reverse swing playing out. You also have God's people in his midst. So you have God coming to dwell with his people, but then the tabernacle conveys also that God's people dwell with God. They're in his presence. It's not just he is in their presence. They are in his presence now too. And there's two specific images that I want to play out here from the tabernacle furniture. The first off is the table. So that's from chapter 25 of Exodus. And the table is inside the, inside the holy place along with two other pieces of furniture. We have the lampstand, which we've talked about. And then we've had, we have the altar of incense, which I'll talk about in a second, but we also have this table. And the table is significant not just for the fact that it's a table, but it's for what's on the table that's really significant. And for that, we have to go to Leviticus 24, where it depicts that something goes on the table. And what goes on the table is what's called the bread of the presence. So it's 12 loaves of bread that sit on this table and in direct opposite to the lampstand. So you kind of have the lampstand, in a sense, hovering over the table, kind of watching over it, kind of oriented directly across from it, and then you have 12 loaves upon this table. What's going on there? Why is that a significant image for us? Well, the 12 loaves, obviously, there are 12 tribes in Israel. So you have essentially a marker of the entirety of God's people inside the holy place where God dwells, inside of his throne room. And you have a lampstand oriented directly across from it, kind of looking down on it 
Well, why is that significant? Well, Jeremiah 1, 11 through 12, and I'm going to read there real quick. You don't have to flip there. There's a very specific image that goes on in Jeremiah 1, 11 through 12, where Jeremiah speaks, or the Lord speaks to Jeremiah. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to me asking, What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, I see the branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I watch over my word to accomplish it. Now, if you remember from the structure of the lampstand, it is an almond tree. It's got almond blossoms. That's what the text specifically says it is constructed to look like. And then you have this idea of almonds and watching kind of connected in this particular passage of Jeremiah. And the reason for that is because the two words in Hebrew actually sound extremely similar. And so God himself makes the connection between an almond tree and himself watching over something, in this case, his word. But what's going on then in the tabernacle? The lampstand is watching over the bread that's intended to represent all the tribes of Israel. God is watching over his people, and they are in his presence. The other thing about the lampstand is actually associated with the Holy Spirit. That image is developed a little bit later in Revelation 4, but specifically, the Revelation Specifically, the lampstand in its ever-burning light intended to convey the Holy Spirit is its watching over God's people always for all time. It is always lit. That's one of the jobs of the high priest we'll see later is to always keep the lamps lit, to always keep the bread fresh. So there's always God's people in his presence being watched over by him. And the idea that it's bread that he's watching over is significant because that's the sign of God's provision, the sign of his daily provision for his people's essential needs. So God is watching over his people to provide for their needs. It's not just that he's got his people amongst himself just to have them, but he's also caring for them. He's showing comfort to them. And so as we kind of think about then zooming towards how we relate to God as his people, we are always being watched over. We are always being cared for by God. He cares for us. And he is never resting in his ability to give us his spirit for the purpose of providing for our ultimate need, and that is life in him. So that's the table. The other picture here as far as God's people being in his midst is the altars. So we got two of them. We have the bronze altar outside. That's where all the sacrifices are uh, offered. That's in uh, chapter 27, I believe. And then you have the incense altar. So that's in chapter 30 where it's depicted. So these two altars are also kind of in orientation with each other. One is directly inside the holy place, the gold incense altar, and directly outside of the tabernacle, you have the bronze altar where the sacrifices are offered. So again, they're intended to convey a connection by their orientation. Again, think about the tabernacle as a depiction of what God is doing. You're intended to look at it and see what's going on. So the bronze altar is the place where sacrifices are made, where atonement is made for God's people that they may be acceptable to him. It'll actually say about sacrifices that the fire of those, the smoke from those, rises as a pleasing aroma to God. It ascends to his presence when sacrifices are offered to him. They find uh, that he finds his people acceptable in his sight. But you also have the gold incense altar inside the tabernacle. And that's another place where the high priest ministers, but specifically, that's where incense is offered. And it's offered daily. And it's offered along with 
the daily sacrifices of the burnt offerings from the bronze altar at the same time. So you have these two kind of clouds rising up to God's presence, one from the bronze altar signifying atonement and acceptance, but you also have the incense altar where you have the high priest burning incense and filling the entire holy place and most holy place of the tabernacle with pleasing aroma of smoke. So why is that important? What's going on here? How does that relate to God's people being in his presence? Well, if you take a look at Revelation 8, I'm going to flip there real quick, and I didn't put this on a slide. Sorry about that. Um, But if you look at Revelation 8, it's significant because you have God's throne. And in verse 2, starting in chapter 8 of Revelation, it says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. There's only one place you're burning incense on, and that's the golden altar of incense. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. There's a specific connection between the gold incense altar and the actual concerns and prayers and needs of the people. So when the high priest burns incense on that altar, it's almost as if he is taking the prayers of all the people every single day before God himself, and he is burning them up in a cloud of smoke that they may ascend to God's throne, which is just across the curtain in the most holy place. So, again, there's two aspects of then God's people being able to be in his presence, that they are in his presence because of the fact that they are acceptable, that their sin has been atoned for, but then they rise to his presence by also conveying their needs and their prayers and their supplications to him. And those then arise to his throne as well. So, again, a picture of new creation. Is that with God, now with us as his people, again, we're looking through this to see a pattern of what's now happening. We are now able to fully have we are able to fully be in his presence now. So as we look then at the remainder of this particular section of Exodus, we're actually going to see something else about this new creation, and that's formed through his people. So in chapter 25, which we already read actually at the beginning of the service, God asked Moses to, to tell the people, hey, if you want to, free will offering, take from them all the materials necessarily necessary for building the tabernacle. Gold, silver, bronze, skins, wood, linen, gold, yarn, um, scarlet yarn, basically everything that's needed for the tabernacle, God asks for from his people. So there's a sense in which God actually includes all his people in the creation of his dwelling place. And so even though there's just a specific tribe that's called to minister directly in the tabernacle, that's the Levites, there's a sense in which there's an image of God dwelling not just among his people, but actually within his people. They have provided all the material necessary for this new creation, for this image of new creation, and God dwells in the middle of it, in the middle of everything that the people have devoted to him specifically. So again, God's depiction of a new creation is that it's not just gold, silver, bronze, wood, and all the other materials. It's actually a people who gave them. So God's new creation then is a 
people. He forms his new creation through them. And the second thing I'll note here is from chapter 31 is that the creation is then made through people with whom the Spirit dwells. That was probably one of the more awkward sentences I've ever said. Sorry about that. The Spirit dwells in these people. The Spirit dwells in the people through whom God is forming a new creation. In chapter 31, when it comes time for the tabernacle to be entrusted, uh, the construction to be entrusted to someone, it's entrusted to a guy named Bezalel from the tribe of Judah. Something very specific is mentioned about him in that God says that he would be filled with God's spirit for wisdom, understanding, and ability to construct the tabernacle. Same thing is also said of all the people that would help him because one guy's not going to do it alone. He's going to have people helping out. But this guy is said to be filled with the spirit, with wisdom and understanding and ability. This is the first time that God has mentioned that he would fill the spirit with someone in the Bible. First time. And I don't think that's an accident because he's saying specifically that his new creation is going to be formed not just by, for instance, if we think about Genesis 1 where God creates everything by his spirit just kind of hovering over the face of the water. He is the kind of creating agent there, but he's actually giving his spirit to people in order to form this new creation. He is going to be doing his act of new creation, not just through himself working solo, but through him working through people within whom the Spirit dwells. So, as we look at kind of wrapping up this second pattern of new creation, again, we're going to look past the shadow, past the copy, past past the blueprint, and look at what's actually in effect now, the true new creation that has come. So when Christ came to us, he came as a baby, and it says in John 1 that he actually tabernacled among us. So he is kind of the, the, now the, the dwelling place where God meets man. He is the very dwelling place of God. But at that point in time, the veil, which was still present in the most holy place, it's just now in the temple rather than the tabernacle, that's still in place. Well, what happens with that veil? When Christ dies on the cross, when full atonement is made for sin, that veil is ripped down the middle from top to bottom, and it's repeated in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And that's intended to get our attention, is that this veil of separation between God and man, the place where his full presence has dwelt, and everything else has been removed. He has torn that veil wide open by the blood of his sacrifice and has released the ability for people to come to God. We now have full access to God because of what Christ has done. So what happens then? Well, that's no longer the most holy place. Well, where is God's dwelling place now? Well, it's in the midst of a people. Ephesians is very clear that when God creates his people, he's actually creating them to be a sanctuary for himself, a most holy place, that Jesus is the one creating that, and that's at the end of Ephesians 2. So this new creation, this idea of God's throne room, God's new creation, is coming together in a people, and that's us, that's the church, and it's only by what Christ has done that we are able to come to him and have full access to him through the Holy Spirit that now dwells bodily within each of us who believe. It's not just one guy. (laughs) God didn't say, I'm just going to give it to this guy. I didn't just give it to Nate or Danny, but I'm going to give it to everyone who believes. 
And what I'm going to do is then form my people through the work of other people. So he's going to call us to share the gospel. He's going to call us to live in obedience to him. And through the life then that we live before a watching world, God continues to build his church. God continues to build his new creation because his creation is his people. Ephesians 2.10 is very clear about that. It says that in Christ we have been created for good works that God has prepared ahead of time so that we can walk in them. So then the idea of having the spirit dwell in us is that God has created us anew together as the church as a new creation and that then he sends us out into the world to continue that work because that is how God works. He works through his people. He's not working. That's his main method. That's his main method through his people. So as we end then with our last pattern, I appreciate your patience and time. It's been fantastic. But we're going to finish up with our third and last pattern. So we've talked about how kind of the purpose in the tabernacle construction is to show that God is dwelling with his people. He is depicting that. But this particular pattern is intended to show that God dwells with his people specifically through the actions of one man. So in this particular pattern, this is mainly in chapters 28 through 30, we have the high priest given to us. But if we bear in mind that the tabernacle is intended as a picture of a new Eden, a new creation, well then all of a sudden we think this guy kind of looks like a new Adam, a new representative of God, a new representative of God's people before him and a representative of God to his people. So the high priest is a picture of a new Adam. The fact that there was an old Adam And God is starting again to show us that he is doing something about the brokenness that exists because of what happened originally in Genesis 3. So there's three things that kind of the text calls out about the high priest. It's really kind of concentrated on what he is, what he wears, and what he does. So that's kind of the the main thing of what's going on. So first off, what he is is holy. So he is to be of the same character and quality of God um, that God talked about last week as a representative of his deity and his transcendence, his purity, his holiness. He is to be a representative of God in that way. Because these same qualities are also talked about the objects of the tabernacle that are associated with God's presence. They are holy. The high priest is also holy. There's this whole consecration ceremony in, in chapter 29, and it's very exhaustive about the idea that holiness is being placed on the high priest. He is intended to go through this very elaborate ceremony so that he can actually be considered this holy status. But he's done so so that he can be considered sinless, clean, and holy so that he can serve as a representative of God's people before God. So this kind of transition into what he wears. So the high priest is considered whole, is to be considered holy by like who he is, by what has been actually done to him, but also what's been done to his clothes and the way his clothes are structured. So there's a very specific set of clothes and that holy, sinless, righteous status is to be applied to the clothes as well as to the priest. Well, that gets into what's the purpose of these clothes. Well, they're considered holy, but why is there such detail spent and and time spent on what these clothes are supposed to look like? Well, the reason for that is they are clothes or garments, if you will, of representation. 
So there's three main pieces of clothing that's mentioned for the high priest. That's the ephod, that's the breast piece, and that's the turban. And all these garments are associated with representing the entire people of Israel before God as he goes about his daily duties, as he goes about setting the candles up in in the lampstand and making sure they're burning, as he goes about setting the bread on the table, as he offers incense on the altar intended to signify the prayers of the people, as he makes sacrifices outside the tabernacle intending to atone for the people. In all this, he is bearing Israel on his clothes. The ephod specifically has two shoulder pieces made of onyx stones, and on each shoulder piece are six names of the tribes of Israel. So the high priest by the ephod is bearing Israel's name on his shoulders. Then you have the breast piece, and the breast piece is situated over his heart, and it's got 12 gemstones in it in four rows of three. And on each gemstone is the name of each of the tribes of Israel. So bearing the names of Israel on his shoulders, over his heart, and finally on the turban, you have this medallion that says, holy to the Lord. And the text specifically calls out that it says holy to the Lord so that the high priest can bear the guilt associated with Israel before God as a remembrance before him. So Israel, even as they are born on the shoulders of the high priest and over the heart of the high priest, also born on the forehead of the high priest as well. Everything about what the high priest wears represents the people of God before God. So why is that significance? Well, again, think about the status of the high priest. He is holy, right? So what he is doing is by his ministry, he is making Israel acceptable to God. His clothes are declared holy and righteous, and so so too then God can declare his people righteous by the actions of the high priest representing them before him which gets into what he does. And the high priest's role can be summed up in one word, and that is intercession. That is his job. That is what he does. He tends the lamp. He sets the bread on the table. He offers incense on the altar. He offers sacrifices on the altar outside, daily sacrifices every single day. He's doing the same things over and over and over again. And in all of that, he is representing Israel before God in order to intercede for them before God. And of course, we have then later on in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, the one day per year where someone could enter the most holy place and only one guy could do it. And that's this guy, the high priest. He brings the blood of the sacrifices intending to have all of Israel's sins kind of born within it, and he takes it inside the most holy place, and then he covers, and then he puts it on the mercy seat beneath the cherubim where God's glory has appeared and above the law, which is right beneath it. Well, what's that intending to convey? That the high priest, by his atoning action, has covered the requirements of the law with an atoning sacrifice, with the blood of a sacrifice, and God dwelling over the mercy seat shows them mercy because their sins have been atoned for by his representative amongst the people, the high priest. So then, as we look at this picture of a new Adam, again, it's an incomplete one, right? There's definite articles of clothing and definite uh, phrases in that particular section that shows that things are not quite right yet. Namely, he's got bells on his robes. What do the bells do? Well, they prevent him from incurring guilt and dying before God because they're intended to essentially, let me back up. So he's got bells on his robes 
to essentially appear as holy before God that he would not incur guilt and die. He wears specific linen undergarments to cover himself so that he would not incur guilt and die. This guy, even supposed to be holy, even supposed to be a representative of God's people, can still incur guilt and die. And we get this long line of high priests who die. And then we have high priests mentioned specifically in in scripture that incur guilt and die. We need a better representative than this. And so that's where Jesus comes in. That's where we're supposed to be looking at. When we look at this high priest, we're not going to say, oh, we've got everything we need in this guy. Let's still use him. We need a better high priest. We need a better high priest. So the book of Hebrews describes Jesus, as we've already read, as that very high priest. He doesn't need himself to be declared righteous before God because he is righteous. He is God himself. His own clothing is the clothing of righteousness, the clothing of representation. It's imbued with his own deity and his own purity and holiness because he is God. And then he brings his own perfect blood, not the the blood of some other animal that he himself can't give for, but it's his own blood he brings into the sanctuary of the heavenly places and offers it once, once and for all, never having to do it again. Why? Because His blood is effective in its holiness and purity and its perfection, and then he lives forever. He has been resurrected from the dead to show that he is eternal. So we have a better high priest, and his name is Jesus. And because of him, now we can know that we are forever accepted before God, that we are forever interceded for before God. And that nothing is going to remove Jesus from his office or somehow make him less holy or less perfect than he is because he is completely holy and that is unchangeable. And so what then is the response that we as the church now have to the fact that we have received the great high priest, the one who was to come, Jesus Christ? I'm just going to read from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So now Jesus has opened, he has opened the high place to us. He has opened the sanctuary to us. Well, who has been going into the sanctuary at this point? It's priests which Chad has already mentioned, is that now, as people who have been saved by Christ can enter into the heavenly places by the blood of Jesus, now we ourselves enter into God's presence to worship him, but also to represent others to him as well. That we are to a lost and dying world, bring them before God and intercede for them on their behalf because they don't know God but they need to know him. They need to know, they need to have this high priest and what he has done for us because again, a new creation is coming. All things are being made new 
and that is the way in which we were always intended to live. We were always intended to be worshipers of God forever in his presence. And we get a hint of that as I conclude in the greater reality coming. And specifically from Exodus 29, which we read earlier, but I'll read it again, where God says of the tabernacle, I will also meet with the Israelites there, and that place will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God, and they will know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. And there's a sense of promise there. There's also a sense of that will happen. There's a will still yet to come. There's a greater fulfillment, even what we experience now, that's still coming. So, a day of greater reality, um, a day when all of heaven and all of earth will actually be made new. We're not just going to get a depiction of it, but it's actually going to be done. And it will be done forever, and the old things will pass away so that we don't have to worry about taking our kids to the grocery store for fear that someone like Chad said may decide to make their statement. We don't have to worry about sin and brokenness and our own, our own folly before God that it seems that we can bring to him when we, when we attempt to follow him or attempt to worship him and, and do so so imperfectly. We will have all sin be taken away. Every wrong thing that exists now will be untrue. And we will get to dwell with him, with God, with Jesus, our great high peace forever. And we're going to do so as a feast. That's the day that's coming. We're going to be able to break bread together, going back to Exodus 24, is that we will be able to sit in God's presence and eat and drink forevermore. And we're going to enjoy it. We're going to enjoy it without sin. Like, I enjoy it now. Like, I can't even imagine how much... It's going to be great to be able to sit in God's presence and not have any, like there's, there's things about sin I don't even understand in myself because like the impact runs so deep, but that's all going to be gone. And that's where we're going. And so as we wrap up today, I want us to celebrate that coming day together. As we take the table, it's just a little wafer. It's just a little cup. There's not much to it but it's intended to give us a foretaste of that great reality coming. So, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the realities of these things that have come. We see here in your word that, in this section of scripture, that you have, at this point, started to bring these realities to bear on us and started to make them again and restore a people to you to be your people with you being their God. And Lord, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that we get to experience the reality of Jesus Christ. That he came and he lived and he died and he rose again. And because of him, we are able to experience you. And because of what he did, we know that there is a greater experience coming. So, Father, help us, Lord, as we, as we come to the table. Help us to, help us to come to you in humility. But, Father, enjoy. 
and in the glory of the fact that we are accepted forever in your sight because of Jesus. And Father, help us as we go out from here. As we take this table together, help us to understand there's still work to do. This is still just a foretaste. The full reality of this thing still has not happened yet. So Father, help us to live as ones who bear your name to a watching world and to you. Lord, that we would honor your name as holy and that, Lord, we would commit to the work, Lord, of the holy life, of the Lord, just of the necessity, Lord, of us to minister your name to the people of this world so that your name may be made glorified and great. And Lord, we just look forward to to the coming day when we can say, um, no longer have to say, come Lord Jesus, because he has finally fully come. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.